Thank you so much for the privilege of being here. This is a, I count it a tremendous honor and privilege to come out here. I love to be able to sit and worship with you and just uh, you know, to worship wash over you. This is, this is powerful times. And uh, I just, I love prairie. Um, Mark said I'm a friend of prairie. Well, I, I just feel like part of my heart is here. And that's strange because I went to Briarcrest, actually. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if that's just a bad mistake or a sin, but, it, you know, I would never go back. No. It, actually, it's interesting. I don't think I've hardly ever been back at Briarcrest. I've, uh, I've been here, uh, coming and going from here for a few years, and uh, Briarcrest, not so much, but, but I'm sure it's a good school. Anyway... I, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to speak. And I, you know, Mark asked me earlier um, in the summer if I would come out here and speak at one of the chapels, and I picked a date later in the fall. And then he messaged me back and said, could we make it the 12th of September? And I said, oh, sure. And then he said, oh, the, um, the topic's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, what? I'm way over my head at Prairie. Um, you guys know Hebrew backwards and forwards, and you have professors here that know a lot more about Genesis 1 and 2 than I do. What am I doing talking on Genesis 1 and 2? And I thought to myself, well, I may not be able to um, deal with the text the way, the way some of you might, but I've read it for many years, and I've reflected on it for a long time, and I've prayed through it. And I'd just like to offer you today some of my reflections on the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Before we get there, let me just make a couple of comments about the Bible. You know, you come to study the Bible, and it's a very good thing. But you need need to not forget that what you're dealing with with the Bible is really a prayer book that brings you into the presence of God. And, And I think that all of Scripture ought to be prayed through and it's a wonderful way to look at Scripture. It's also a book that um, is, is written, and we ought to always read it this way, present tense, not past tense. Do you remember in, in um, is it Hebrews where he's quoting Psalms and he says, as the Holy Spirit says, and he's quoting Psalms. I would have said, as the Holy Spirit said, but he says, as the Holy Spirit says. This book is present tense. What that means is, Whoever the original audience was, in terms of Genesis 1 and 2, God had you in mind uh, as well as them when he gave Genesis 1 and 2. It's as relevant and current to you as it was to the people it was originally addressed to. You ought to always read it present tense. And then you ought to read it as as a love letter that's got your name on it from God to you. It needs to be studied, it needs to be, but you know what, we study love letters. You know, in my day, when I grew up, which is a long time ago, um, we, we didn't have email or text or messenger or any social media stuff. Like we had these, they were called letters, and you had to like write stuff out, and then you put them in an envelope, and they had a thing called a stamp that you'd put on it, and you'd put it in a mailbox, and it would, it would go to whoever. You know, when I was at Briarcrest, I, st- I was from Victoria at the time, I was going out with a girl from, from uh, Emerson, Manitoba. Eventually married her, and uh, we used. She used to send me letters, and they were like love letters, and I I read them like a love letter, personally addressed. But I studied them, and I would go back over them. I would look at every word and try and get behind the words. What is this woman thinking, and and or why isn't she thinking or whatever you know, um, but 
just because the Bible is a text that we study doesn't mean you don't read it as a love letter. Personally addressed from God and it has your name on it. And it changes our lives when we live into it. So it, it's an honor to take you today to Genesis chapter 1. And I, I know, I think that, I think you were talking about Genesis 1 and 2, but I'm, I'm going to probably mostly land in Genesis 1. What you're dealing with in Genesis 1 and 2 is not two separate creation accounts. You have the creation account in Genesis 1, and then it's like it zooms in to the creation of the man and woman in Genesis 2 and fills that out for us in, in a lot more detail. It's fascinating stuff. But let me begin by, um, would you mind if, if I read the whole chapter? Because if I, if, no matter what I say, um, the Word of God will always come back fruitful. So I'd love to read you this chapter. So let me read it to you. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. The gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds and the livestock, um, the creatures that move along the ground and, and wild animals, each according to their kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created 
mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he has made, all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creation that he had done. It's possible if you've kicked around church or Christian things for a while to be so familiar with these words that they lose their, their impact on us. Um, there is both majesty and mystery in Genesis chapter 1. Majesty in that this sovereign God, by his powerful word, transforms um, chaos into something beautiful and delightful that God could finally say it was very good. Um, majesty, it's almost like it was a hymn, Genesis 1, written in praise of the Creator. And, you know, we, we sang Revelation song this morning. If you go to Revelation 4 and 5, God is always worshipped as Creator and then as Redeemer. And so you have this, this majestic feel to Genesis chapter 1. The sense of wonder as you walk into this chapter where God takes utter chaos transforms it into something utterly beautiful and delightful. And there's mystery here too. I mean, how did he do it? Was a day a day? Um, is it a young earth or an old? It's mystery. And, and you know, I, I've come to understand when I read Genesis chapter 1 that the secret things belong to God. And there's some things I just have to leave with God. Uh, you have both mystery and you have majesty as you walk into Genesis chapter 1. Let me make a couple of observations about um, the creation accounts and then maybe just um, wander through it with you. But a uh, couple of observations. One would be this. You don't have here a scientific description. What you have is a theological affirmation. In other words, we're not dealing with how God did this. We're dealing with who. Genesis 1 wants us to know who did it, not how he did it. Uh, scriptures say very little about how. If you, the only uh, places in Scripture that you get even, even a tiny hint of maybe how he did it would be Job's uh, chapter, uh, was it, is it 38 or whatever it is on creation, where Job talks about God stretching out or expanding the universe. Uh, Job will hint at a couple of things, but there's very little in Scripture on how. Scripture's concerned with who. And so that's why you read at the very beginning, the very first verse, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Um, another observation is this that I've made on these chapters and as it relates to the rest of Scripture. There's two chapters here on creation. How many chapters do you think there are in Scripture on the tabernacle or the temple or the priests 
or all their garments. 40 plus, maybe up to 50. Isn't that interesting? Two chapters on creation, 40 plus on all sorts of things that we get, we don't even, we're not even interested in mostly. And we get there in our devotions. It's like, how do I fast forward, you know? And yet, we bring all our questions to the two chapters and really have no questions for the 40 plus. I thought that's interesting. Why would God give so little time to what we're really interested in here and so much time to what we're not really interested in? And I thought to myself, it must be because God's priority might be different from ours. The tabernacle, then the temple, and all the bits about sacrifice and the approach to God are all about relationship with God and how to have relationship with Him. How to come into the presence of a holy God. How to know Him. That's God's priority. His priority is relationship. And so it strikes me as interesting that, you know, you have these two chapters on creation, all these on the tabernacle temple, and it, it, it reveals to you God's heart in terms of desiring relationship with us. Um, the other thing is, that I noted is its relationship with the Ten Commandments. Genesis 1 and 2's relationship with the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Maybe these texts landed to a bunch of people on the backside of the desert who were given the Ten Commandments. Why should we live this way? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 provides the foundation, the rationale for the Ten Commandments. The reason we don't worship other gods is because there's only one God that made heaven and earth. The reason we don't worship the sun and the moon and the stars is because he made them. Um, the reason we don't kill is because we're made in his image and likeness. The reason we don't commit adultery is because he made a man and a woman and brought them together in covenant relationship for life. The reason we have Sabbath is because God had Sabbath on the seventh day rest. You could work through the Ten Commandments, and you can see how, how these two chapters provide a real foundation or rationale for the Ten Commandments. And uh, so just some observations that I, I picked up as I read this and sort of reflected on these chapters in the light of other scripture. Um, so I guess where Genesis 1 starts is, you'd have to say with a relative beginning, not an absolute beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's talking about the beginning of what we see and where we live, but it's not an absolute beginning. For that, you've got to go back to John chapter 1 and verse 1, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 goes way back before Genesis 1. So you're dealing here with just a, a relative beginning, and when God begins this, the starting point of creation, it's really fascinating to see what he had to work with. It says the earth was formless, empty, and darkness over. It's almost a foreboding sense to verse 2. We have no idea how it got that way. No idea what happened. But the starting point of creation was, was those three words summarize it. It was formless. That means it was a, a trackless waste, desert. Um, the word empty, it, it actually means... Um, Empty is a word that would get back and mean uh, chaotic and, and um, just out of control. And darkness is always in Scripture that symbol of evil. You just get a sense of dark. there's something wrong here. It doesn't tell us what's wrong or how it's wrong or why it's wrong. It just tells us that God began with that. 
God always, it seems, loves to begin uh, that way with, um, with formlessness and make something beautiful out of it. He's still doing that. You ever read Psalm 139? You know, can I, can I read you a couple of verses from there? Um, it was in my Bible this morning when I looked at it. But, oh, here it is. Psalm 139. Listen to this. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. There's God again, creating something beautiful out of something formless. And just, this is an aside. Um, This doesn't count as my time. This is an aside. But, um, you know, it's beautiful when you read Psalm 139 and, and get into the the background of it, what God is doing. This is a, he's, he's a, this is a hands-on thing. Uh, you know, when, when he created Adam in chapter two, he made him out of the dust of the ground. He made the woman out of the rib, but he made you uh, with his hands-on too in your mother's womb. And it says there that your eyes saw my unformed body. The, the sense there is he couldn't take his eyes off you. For nine months, while you were shaped and formed in your mother's womb, he couldn't, he was riveted. He couldn't take his eyes off you. Um, and, and when I'm awake, I'm still with you. I take that as, as I'm, I'm here now, and he still can't take his eyes off me. Isn't that amazing? And then Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of God's people. You know what the word precious there means? There, there's a sense in which it's valuable if... If this is precious, it's valuable. But the word is nuanced there. It's not so much the value as it is what you do with something valuable. What do you do with something valuable? You carefully watch over it. Carefully watched over is the death of God's people. Um, He couldn't take his eyes off you in your womb. He can't take his eyes off you now. And in your final days, he won't be able to take his eyes off you because those will be carefully watched over days. You talk about an amazing God who set his heart, not just his hands on you. I I love Psalm 139 for that reason. But Genesis starts there, and and then it says, um, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word hovering means boundaried in, boundaried in. There's darkness, there's chaos, there's, there's bad stuff, but it's boundaried in by the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful thought. Uh, If you have kids or grandkids like I do, or if you have friends that don't know Jesus, sometimes I pray, Lord, hover over them. Boundary them in. Don't let the chaos break through those boundaries. That's what was happening there. And it's a beautiful way to pray. God, my friends, are, they're getting into some really bad stuff. Hover over them. Boundary them in so they, they can't break through the, the chaos. You set boundaries around it, in other words. That's what the Spirit of God is doing there. And then you have this process of creation that begins every day with, and God said... And God said, and God said. Um, and after he creates, he makes a statement, and that statement is, and it was good, it was good. The, the word good there is, is a word that simply means um, it fulfills its purpose. It, it's a word that, that would mean um, it, it was exactly like God intended when he called it into being. 
so whether it's the universe or the vegetation or the animals, or you, exactly as he wanted is what, what happened. Um, and it's all done by his powerful word. Each day, God speaks. Each day, he looks at it. And each day, he's able to say, and it was good, it was good, it was good. There's, there's an order from verses uh, 3 to 19. And then after that's all there, there's this fullness in verse 20. And then it begins to flourish. God calls it into being, and then everything he calls into being flourishes. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to think about God's purposes for creation and for you and me is that we flourish. And that's brought out here. What you're, what you're dealing with here is God's heart, the way it should have been, the way it was supposed to be. And um, one of the great things I like to do with Genesis is, is compare it with Revelation. It, Reve, the end of Revelation will tell you that God is going to come full circle. Um, he never gives up on his original creation. Um, what you have at the beginning is what you're going to have at the end. And God's, God's powerful word brought it into being. His powerful word, Colossians will say, maintains it. And in 2 Peter 3, it says, and his powerful word will one day bring it to an end, the way the, way the world is now. Uh, so you've got a flow of history that begins in Genesis 1 with God's word. He speaks, it happens. He speaks, he holds it together. He speaks, and finally it comes to an end. Uh, you've got this great highlighter running through the scriptures uh, of God's powerful, powerful word. Um, good exactly as he planned or exactly as he willed. Um, and then it's fascinating to look at what he says about the sun and the moon and the stars. He made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, lesser light to govern the night. And it's almost a throwaway line, although in Scripture there's no throwaway lines. Oh yeah, and he made the stars. Like billions of those things. Oh yeah, and he made those too. He doesn't even name these things. Why doesn't he name them? Because they were worshipped back then. They were worshipped. And people looked at the stars to determine the direction of their, their lives and Genesis 1 is saying, why would you worship that? They're, they're created things. And, the, and by the way, the stars, yeah, God made them. Fascinating. We don't even know how many there are. God made them. Psalm 146, or 147, will tell you that there's a name for every star. Um, talk about an awesome God. It's incredible. Then you get to the high point of creation, which is people, you and me, verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make mankind in our image. The us, obviously uh, a hint there of relationship. There's a relationship going on there in the Godhead. Let us make man in our image and our likeness and they'll rule over everything, uh, beasts of the earth and the field and so on. Um, but verse 27, it's just like everything slows down. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created, three times, he created them. He created them. He created them. You're not random. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You were created. Um, in Genesis 5, it's, uh, verse uh, 2, it says the same thing three times. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. So we don't miss it. Six times in the first five chapters, you were created, you were created, you were created. Uh, in the image and likeness of God. So much ink has been spilled on what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God. I don't know. But I'll tell you two things that strike me. To be made in the image and likeness of God makes it possible to have a relationship with God. 
And it also made it possible for God to become a man. Uh, And so when Jesus shows up, he comes the full image of God and basically says to us, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God says, listen to me. If you want to know how God will deal with you in your stuff, watch how Jesus deals with people. Even broken, wrecked people. Do you remember that? Remember that time when the woman was caught in the act of adultery? It's, it's a bad day when you're caught in the act of adultery. It's a worse day when your next moment is face-to-face with Jesus. She's basically got a bed sheet around her. That's it. And she's thrown at the feet of Jesus, and they want to stone her. And uh, you, you probably remember the story. They all begin to leave, and she's left there face-to-face with Jesus. What's he going to say? Do you remember what he says? He speaks gospel to her. Gospel. First words, I don't condemn you. Second words, go and sin no more. You know what we do as a church sometimes? If you don't sin, you won't be condemned. The gospel is you're not condemned. The debt has been paid. So turn around. Go a different direction. Sin no more. That's gospel. Um, The gospel is not if you stop sinning, you won't be condemned. The gospel is you're not condemned. When Jesus came, he came to show us God's heart and what God is. That's what God says. You're not condemned. The debt has been paid. When were you saved? Ah, 2,000 plus years ago. That's when the debt was paid. There was a point in time when the Holy Spirit pointed you to that. And you said, okay, I'll believe that. And it became real for you. But you were literally saved 2,000 years ago. There's nothing left to pay. When Jesus said it is finished, it was done. Finished. That's good news. You know what else is good news? You were made in the image and likeness of God. You have incredible value. The Bible starts with good news. There's a system of theology, which I won't comment on in terms of it, whether I like it or not, other than to say I think it starts in the wrong place. The acronym is TULIP. Um, And it starts with the T. You know what the T is? Total depravity. No, that's true. Total depravity doesn't mean we're all as bad and depraved as we could be. It just means that there's not a part of us that hasn't been tainted by sin. That's total depravity. The problem I have with it is that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts with good news before the bad news. The good news is you were made in the image and likeness of your creator. That's good news. The bad news is we screwed it up. And the good news is Jesus came and, you know, you know the story. But listen, you can take this gospel onto the streets of Red Deer or Three Hills or anywhere else and look at anybody in the face and say, I've got good news for you. You were created in the image and likeness of God. You were. And you have infinite value and worth because of that. That's what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Why did God create you? If we, if we had time to get into chapter 2, you know what you'd find out? That God takes Adam out and he makes Adam out of a lump of clay and then get this. He goes face to face with them, lip to lip with this lump of clay, and breathes into this lump of clay the breath of life. What do you think the first thing Adam will see when he comes to life? The face of his creator. That's the first thing you'll see. Isn't that a massive hint about why you were created? To know God, to love God, to live in his presence, to see him. And God never has given up on that dream. 
vision, purpose of his. At the end of Revelation, he comes right back to it. The garden comes back. The tree of life is in the garden. Uh, Sin and the curse have been eradicated. And that great statement, and we will see his face. He's going to come full circle before he's done. Um, And you'll see his face as a believer in Jesus. And you'll live in his presence. And that's the way you were meant to live. Do you know, um, here's another side. Psalm 1 starts this way. Blessed is the person. Then it says he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. You have this progression downward. Sin always takes you down. Somebody that doesn't walk in the counsel, he's walking this way and looking this way. A godly person just looks straight ahead, doesn't look sideways at the bad things. Um, but then it, it progresses or doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He's walking, he looks, and then, oh my goodness, and it's got your attention. Uh, there's other people that they take a look, they stand, and finally they take a seat. They sit in the seat of mockers. Sin will always drag you down. But it's the word blessed. You know what blessed means? It doesn't mean happy. The word blessed, blessed is the person who doesn't walk that way. It has a backwards look, the word blessed, and it has a forwards look. The backwards look is here to Genesis 1 and 2. The word blessed A blessed person is living life like their creator intended it to be lived in relationship with their creator. You are blessed if you walk with Jesus every day. That's what God intended. But it also has a forward look. Um, It is a future. Do you remember uh, the Beatitudes? Jesus said, blessed are those that mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Those that hunger and thirst will be filled. Not now, necessarily, but will be. There's this future sense. So a blessed person today is living life like God intended and has a future and a hope. That person is blessed. It's, I hope that's you, and I trust that's you, and I trust that's me as we walk with Jesus today. Anyway, I better get back. I just got to wrap this up shortly. But Genesis 1 and 2. So you have this, this beginning of creation. You have this whole process. And you have this goal, which is the creation of the, the man and the woman. Um, and at the very end of it, it says that God, God rests on that seventh day from all the work of his creation. And the, the Ten Commandments will pick that up, at least in one of the, the tables of the Decalogue. Um, the reason we take Sabbath is because God did. Um, he rested from all of his work. So I just want to land the plane here a bit by just asking this question. So what do these two chapters tell you about God? What do they tell you about God? If you took a Bible and you handed it to a friend that doesn't know God and said, just read the first chapter, even the first two, and tell me what you think it says about God, you, you could come up with a whole list of things. I, I guess I just want to give you two. The first thing that I got when I read these two chapters is God is unmistakably personal. Unmistakably personal. And he exists in relationship. Let us make man. Uh, if, you, if you got back to the, the DNA, the core DNA, the, the center of everything, it's not a big bang or a black hole. At the center of everything, there's a relationship. There's a relationship. And you have this unmistakably personal God who exists in relationship and who actually holds everything together. Absolutely everything that is and exists, including you and me, owes its existence to him. 
And if for one second he took his hand off it, it would blow apart. Um, we owe our very existence to him. I think it's a wonderful discipline to get up every day and say thank you. And at the end of the day, say thank you. Life is a gift. Uh, it, we're here because of his will. If he decided that we aren't going to be here, we wouldn't be here. But we're here because he wants us here and his purpose and plan for us. You have this unmistakably personal God, not a higher power. I used to do a lot of fifth-step counseling for AA for years, and, and I did fifth-step counseling is where you meet with someone and they, they tell you all the stuff they've been dealing with. It's not pretty, but I used to do it because it was an opportunity to say, can I explain to you who the higher power is? You're not just dealing with a higher power. You're dealing with an unmistakably personal God who knows you and calls you by name and, and who hand-created you with purpose. That's what you got when you come to Genesis 1 and 2. The other thing about God that's clear here, you can't miss it. He speaks. He speaks. And God said. And God said. And God said. You're dealing with a speaking God. So when Jesus comes, the full image and likeness of God, he says, my sheep know me, and, they, and I speak to them, and they listen to my voice, and I call them by name. That's God. He speaks. His people listen, and he calls your name. Um, that's powerful stuff. He once brought order out of chaos, life out of death, light out of darkness, and he still does it today. God, by his powerful word, can take any person and bring order out of the chaos of their life can bring them into light out of their own darkness. God can take any person and give them life when they live in death by his powerful word. That's why his word is so important. That's why we ignore it at our peril. Because when you take this word and live into it, it will bring light to your darkness, life to your death, and order to your chaos. So David the most tragic figure in the Old Testament and the greatest figure in the Old Testament all at once. Um, once had a one-night stand with Bathsheba and everything went off the rails. You might know that story. He comes to the point where he's, he doesn't come clean, but he's caught. And when he's caught, he owns up. That's actually why David doesn't die, because both sins, adultery and murder, were capital offenses. He should have died. But the reason he didn't was he submitted himself to the prophetic word. And in the Bible, um, you know, people talk capital punishment. In the Bible, capital punishment, if you're going to put somebody to death, it always had to be on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Second thing was the witnesses had to be the ones that put the person to death, stoned them. But the third thing was repentance always waived the death penalty. And so David repents. And then he brings um, that great confession that we have in Psalm 51 before God. You notice after, after Psalm 51, that confession, he, it says to the choir director, he takes that, that prayer and he passes it on to the worship leader. Why? So that all God's people will learn to pray it. Because all God's people fail in sin. And when we sin, we can take the words of Psalm 51. But what's at the heart of Psalm 51? Create. There's our word. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. 
Um, you know what David's praying there? Lord, do a Genesis 1 work in me again. When you pray, create in me a clean heart, you are praying, do a Genesis 1 work in me, God, because my life has become disordered and chaotic because of my foolishness. Would you bring it back? Lord, do a Genesis 1 work in my heart where you bring light where there's darkness and life where there's death. And so create in me a clean heart is a prayer we ought to pray all the time. Lord, he still, that's why this, I said to you at the beginning, this book is present tense. He still says and does what he did then. He still creates in people's hearts a Genesis 1 week. He's a God that speaks. Let me, let me just end with this. Um, as I like to encourage you while you're here at Prairie, uh, to get all the information you can, to study the word as much as you can. If you're studying languages, study the languages. But don't miss God. Don't miss his voice. He speaks. You know, there's only four sources of voices. There's other people. There's Satan. There's my own heart or mind, and there's God. And sometimes we ask the question, how to know if God is speaking to me? Well, if I'm in my office and studying the Bible or listening to God, trying to listen to God, there's no other people around, so I can eliminate that. After a while, I've learned to discern Satan's voice. It's not, it never, Satan will, Satan's voice will never cause you to love God or your neighbor more. So I can eliminate that. Now it's me or God. Is this God or is this me? You know, if, if what I'm hearing directs me to love God more and my neighbor more, I'll just run with it. It's either the Holy Spirit or it's my renewed mind and it's worth following. But never forget that God wants to speak to you. And if you give him time to listen, he will speak to you. And when he speaks to you, if you take it to heart, you'll see beauty and you'll see order and you'll see life and you'll see light beginning to birth in your heart. So I just wanted to share that with you today. I hope out of all that, the Holy Spirit's able to separate some wheat from chaff for you. And um, you'll be encouraged today that you get to live not only with your brothers and sisters, but in a relationship with the God who called you into being and determined the times and the places set for you. That's a beautiful thing. Can we pray together? Why don't we stand together? Father, we just want to take a moment and thank you again for life and for the beauty of your creation and for boundary lines that have fallen for us in pleasant places. Father, none of this we deserved. It's gift, and we want to say thank you. Thank you for the beauty of this time of year, harvest and uh, the beauty of the fields and the weather. And Father, we, we praise you too because we get together like this to worship, and we remember that you not only created us, but you died in our place, and we thank you for that. Father, thank you today for your word, and I pray the things that are of you, you'd plant in our hearts, and the rest you just blow away. And I pray for these people today, Father, that you'd please bless them and keep them, Please make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. Please turn toward them and grant them your peace. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you.